Also, Butch, remember Butch and Seiko, he asked me the pastoral and prayer request I just remembered, texted today. As you know, uh, um, his mother-in-law, who's in Japan, Masao, Japan, um, I'm not, he didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of details. There was some type of scam or something like that that took place and that she fell to. And so, anyhow, she's dealing with fear and other things like that. So he is asking prayer for her mother-in-law's safety and well-being. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter 3. And I'm going to start reading there in verse number 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us. For yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but our busybodies. Now then that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ with the quietness they were, with that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. And if any obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you, Lord, and I pray for your help and your blessing upon the service tonight. I pray for your mercy and your grace, Lord. Please, may your word feed your people. May it help us. May it strengthen us. May it draw us closer to you. May you use your word tonight to to meet needs, to to do what needs to be done, Lord. You know every single person's thought and where they're at. And, Lord, so I pray that you would use this to strengthen and to draw us closer to you. I do pray if anyone is here who has never truly been converted... Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that perhaps even this evening they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be finishing up 2 Thessalonians here this evening, Lord willing. And Paul is bringing this epistle to a close. I know I have enjoyed this series greatly of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Uh, it taught us much, uh, provided uh, you know, just crucial information and doctrine concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw a church that where Paul starts off in First Thessalonians, talks about their works of faith, their labor of love, how patient they were, how they were an example for all believers. I mean, he was just commending them at their strength and all the trials and all the adversity that they were, spa- uh, that they were facing, staying faithful in spite of all the hardships. We know how often, many times... People turn from the Lord during suffering. And many times it's, it's, it's simply a, a result of it, almost them wanting to get back at God. As if they expected God the whole time to be like their genie in a bottle. 
that if, okay, if I'm going to serve you, then I need, I need these blessings, these certain type of blessings on my life. And if God isn't how they put it together in their mind and makes their life easy, then many times it can turn to bitterness in their life. But God never, ever promises a life without that. It's going to be difficult. We're going to have sin issues to deal with. We're going to have struggles and trials. What he promises is the peace, grace, strength, what we need to come through and still stay close to the Lord, still be an example as this church was. We learned about key doctrines such as the rapture. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we learned how we were not appointed to wrath when that time of judgment hits the earth. We learn how we need to respond, knowing the Lord is coming and it could happen at any moment. Not to render evil for evil, to rejoice evermore, to pray without ceasing, and everything to give thanks, to quench not the spirit, despise not prophecy, prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from all appearance, all appearances of evil. We learn the importance of staying with truth. Not to be shaken from it, not to be taken, not, not to allow that truth to be taken away from your mind and your heart. How when you do leave truth, you find yourself confused and shaken. We learn much about the Antichrist. What happens when he is finally revealed. How men reject God, not because they've never heard, but because they don't love truth. They love their sin. How we were encouraged to stand fast, to have our hearts directed towards the Lord. And now as Paul finishes, you can see he's dealing with one subject as he closes. He waited to the very end because there is a problem in the church. And now he's going to get actually really stern with it. He actually addressed it in 1 Thessalonians nicely. Commanded it this, those who weren't walking right to, to uh, change. But it has not happened. So he's taking it to the next step. So he's dealing with the problem the church is. When problems are not solved, they grow and become worse. Many people, when problems arise, just choose to stick their head in the sand. But listen, that's never the right course of action. You pray for wisdom, and you deal with it from a scriptural point of view whenever possible. You, you, you get yourself a cut, and you don't treat that thing on your hand. You let that thing get infected. That thing will just get worse and worse and worse. When problems come up, they need to be dealt with. They need to be dealt with right. It doesn't mean you come at them like, as we're going to see with Paul, with the spirit that Paul maintains here. It's never about punishment. It's, it's about helping. <clears throat> Church problems, again, they are like physical problems. If left alone, they grow and become worse, and they infect more people. And this is what's happening in the church of Thessalonica. The sins of some are starting to affect the entire church. So Paul is going to deal with this problem. Again, when he wrote his first letter, he warned the idle busybodies to get to work. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. He even told the church leaders to warn them that are unruly in chapter 5. So this letter is going to be dealing with that continuing problem. Now, leading up to that, let me tie this in with what we see taking place in, in our own nation with what Paul was facing when he went into Macedonia, into Europe, with the Greek culture. In our nation, we all see how much our country has turned from God. I have preached on it several times over the last seven years. I have talked many times about what happens to a culture when they turn from God, when they remove God. 
When God is removed, there's no longer a basis for morality. When God is removed, every man can do that which is right in his own eyes. He can have his own truth. I mean, we're seeing the fruit of this right now with things that are absolutely absurd. When God is removed, we know from Scripture, sexual sins will run rampant. Violence will grow. Hatred will grow. Men will simply follow their own wicked hearts and try and allow their hearts to determine morality. And we see where that's taking us. But there's another factor that comes into play that also disappears as a nation turns from God, and that is a strong work ethic. We all know there was a time when America was known for its strong work ethic, a nation that worked, that worked hard. And make no mistake, that was directly tied in, that hard work mentality was tied into our respect and fear of God as a nation. The truth is, work is moral. The Greek culture in Paul's day looked to avoid work. They suffered many of the same sins as we do now. In Greek culture, in their own writings, they viewed the gods as hating men, so they gave them work. The Greeks themselves, those who were of, had any type of means, they wanted to give themselves over to pleasures or uh, um, certainly not to work. They would do their best to get slaves for their work. We live in a day that is much like the Greek culture. The culture that Paul was facing, we are facing. And one that is manifested in how men view work. I mean, let's face it, even those that do work today, you can see multitudes of them, even if they are working, they just soon complain about it, complain about the bosses, complain about the pay, complain about the work. Everything's wrong. There's just nothing right about it. They want, to, they want more pay to work less. I would like 10 months of vacation and 20-hour work weeks. Tim, if you can provide that, I'm working for you. Work is moral. It was given by God. Work is not the curse. Difficulty in work was the curse. I mean, the Bible says we are to work six days. God gave us an example of work. The Lord Jesus Christ also worked when He was on the earth. Work is moral. So that means when morality breaks down, you'll see also a breakdown in work ethic. This is the issue that Paul is dealing with. I'm going to look at this in three different areas. If you want to write down, we're going to look at the problem itself, the process to fix it, and the people involved. So the process... Excuse me, the problem, the process, and the people. So let's look at the problem. We're going to look at verse number 6 and verse number 11 is where the problem is addressed. He says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after a tradition which you have received of us. Verse number 11, For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. So what we have defined for us here is the problem is twofold in the church in Thessalonica. 
There are some who are not working, that are living off of the church. And then those same people, that produced another problem because they weren't working and had all this idle time. Then they became busybodies, causing division in the church. So you had a mix of two things that are coming into play. One, feeding off the other. Now, how this came about, I believe, was probably two things combined. The misunderstanding of the Lord's return is possibly a factor. I mean, they think he's coming at any moment. And then, of course, the culture which they are in, because the Greeks hated work. It was part of their culture. If they could find a reason not to do it, let's not do it. The word the Bible uses is the word disorderly. It's a military term. It means out of rank, out of order, disobeying orders. And Paul defines specifically what he was talking about in verse 11. He said, they're not working. They were being lazy. On top of not working, they became busybodies. This word literally means to be Working around, walking around, fooling around, not accomplishing anything. Busybodies meddle in matters that don't belong to them. Because they had nothing to do, their mind not engaged, they got involved in other people's matters. They became busybodies, meddling where they should not be meddling. This was causing division in the church. Many times, people who don't have anything to do wind up causing problems. They have nothing to keep them occupied. With all this time, they start to think, you know what? I know what this church needs. I know what the pastor should be doing. I know how the Sunday school class should be taught. And I I really know what the youth guy, youth director should be doing. I mean, I can think of all these other places that we should be going. Because you're sitting down for eight hours a day thinking on it. Why is working? There's no industry keeping them active. That laziness has put them in a place where Satan has an open door. They begin to meddle in other people's lives. They have time on their hands and a whole lot of gossip on their lips. Many times if you find someone with too much time on their hands, problems can arise. Even throughout Scripture, if you notice, God always calls the people who were very busy and very industrious. Moses, caring for the sheep, Exodus chapter 3. Joshua, Moses' servant, faithful servant, diligent servant, became Moses' successor, Gideon with the wheat, the disciples that Christ called from the work that they did. Christ himself being a carpenter. Paul, the tent maker, using his trade to support his ministry. The Bible, throughout, warns against laziness. For time's sake, I'm not going to turn there. But we, we, we can think of, pro- I have no doubt since I began, there's probably different Proverbs came to your mind. Like Proverbs chapter 6, talking about consider the ant. How he works hard to prepare for what is to come. Now those who are lazy will be in want, their needs won't be met. Or the Proverbs is the lazy will not plow because it's cold. All kinds of excuses why we don't need to work. And how these things will destroy you. And think about it. When men do work, think really what can be accomplished. 
I mean, really, think about it. Think about it in the world right now when people determine to work at what gets accomplished. Have you seen some of the amazing structures that have been built in this world? Incredible. I mean, all that gets done when people have a mind to work. It's amazing. It's the way God made us. And these people, as a result, were hurting the church of Thessalonica because division was coming in. Many times that's exactly what busybodies lead to, and that is division in the church. Listen, you need to avoid those that are coming you causing division. Recognize it. Shut it down. Don't give place to it. And Paul is encouraging the entire church now, as a church, you've got to work together to solve this problem. And so Paul here gives a process of how to solve the problem. He gives four things they need to do in the text to solve it. So now let's go on to point number two, the process. Let's look at a few verses here. Back again in verse 6, he says this, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walketh disorderly, not after the tradition you have received of us. For, you, for yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we behave, behave not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but we wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. Verse 12. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ, that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. So he gives a process here of four different things. What the church was to do to handle this issue that had come in. The first one is to separate. He's calling for church discipline to take place. That is in verse 6 and in verse 14. He wants church discipline to take place. Paul says, you need to separate from them. Paul had already given this group warning back in 1 Thessalonians with the first letter he sent. There was no repentance. It was ignored. And now Paul is telling him, now you have to withdraw fellowship to have no company. It's the exact same warning that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, listen, it's to remove them. You have to remove them from fellowship. <clears throat> the Bible gives several different things. Well, not about three or four and a few other things, but, but three or four primary reasons of why we exercise church discipline. We know it's done for doctrinal error. We see that in Titus chapter 1, 10 through 14, with Romans 16, the command to withdraw from. We see it, the one we would apply here would be Titus. Matter of fact, look at Titus. Let's go over to, let's go over to Titus, because this is the, the, what Paul is using here in this case in the church. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject. Troublemakers. Heretic here means not what you think. Many times we think it just applies to somebody with a false teaching. The word simply means this. Unsubmissive, self-willed, and divisive. Those with a proud attitude. 
These are those who in the church are trying to purposely divide within the church to get people to take sides, to create a division. The Greek word even means to make choice, talking about division. These divisions lead to cliques and all kinds of things within a church, and it leads to problems. And he's saying, this you've got to eliminate. That's what was going on in, 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 at the church of Thessalonica. Many times these people come as a group that can basically oppose anything and everything and seek to cause problems with it. Whether it's, you know, this teacher, this person, the pastor, building programs, you name it. Just whatever comes up, they have a problem with it. It can usually manifest by those who have a desire to feel important, to look important, or those who want a following. Some, what we see throughout history and experience of those that are in this state, Many of them will have different types of emotional problems that they had faced in life, or Satan is using that. Whether they've got hurt in a church in the past, uh, a frustration at home or at work, many times that can come out at church. So we know from Scripture, when it comes to major doctrinal, doctrinal issues, there, there can come a time for church discipline. When it comes to troublemakers causing division within a church, there comes a necessity for discipline. Or, of course, as we all know, immorality, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, is also there. And as we're going to see here even in this chapter, church discipline is done to protect the church and is out of love. Just like when a parent spanks the child. When it's done right, it's in love with the purpose to correct. It's not done because something's wrong. It's done, well, I just had enough. No, it's, it's done with the purpose to correct. Because it's out of love, because you know this is what the child needs. You have some parents say, just mind-boggling in our culture, well, I just can't do it. What are you talking about you can't do it? What does that even mean? Well, you can't. Yes, you can. One, it's God-given responsibility to do it. So you do it. You do it right. Not doing it is showing a lack of love for that child. You, you let a child, you're just not going to do that. You let that child get older and older and older. And the problems they're going to have in their life because they don't have a, a sense ever instilled in them of consequences of actions. Only thing you're doing is hurting them because you don't want to look bad. Or whatever the motive might be. It's right to do and you do it right. You will just enable bad behavior. The same is true in church discipline. It is done in love to correct, to get to a place of repentance and restoration. That's the goal. So Paul here stresses, separate from them. And notice what he said, what this was to produce. Because of our culture today, Oh, they don't like this. Verse 14. And if any old man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be, what does it say? Ashamed. I've said many times, the reason we have different emotions, God has a reason for every single one of them. Shame is one of them. It serves a purpose. And Paul said, you're going to do this so that it does produce that. 
Because what you want the shame to lead to is Paul's entire goal here. Repentance. That there's something that hurts your conscience. Uh, I, I, uh. So you want to change. But nowadays, that's looked at as something that's, that's bad. It's not. It has a right purpose. Are there times when people feel shame when they shouldn't? Yes. That has to be worked out, whether that's counseling or whatever. But there is a God-given reason for shame. Listen, when you sin, you should feel shame. You shouldn't feel acceptance. You should feel shame, remorse, guilt. It's how it works. That's what you want to feel. And so Paul says you have to break company with him. The goal is that it will produce a measure of shame. But again, some won't follow this. I think, well, it's just too harsh. Many churches don't even discipline at all. Some people just choose to ignore. You're just like the parent who won't discipline. You think you're helping, but you're hurting. That's all you're doing. Giving acceptance to sin instead of creating an environment for it to be repented from. Now, there's a difference between acquaintanceship, friendship, and fellowship. There's also a difference in institutions between family, church, etc. What the Bible strongly commands comes to the area of fellowship. This has nothing to do with us being mean. Something's wrong if you are. You're wrong if you're being mean and aggressive towards that person who has committed the sin, what, don't repent, doesn't call first be mean at all. It causes us to break fellowship with. But we're, we are still, certainly, as we're going to see later on as he continues his exhortation, we, we certainly are to be friendly. So he says you need to break fellowship. Then he goes on to the next part of the process. He gives them the standard by which to follow. And that is Paul's example. He gave that in verses 7 through 9 as Paul, as Paul talked about his life. He wanted them to remember how he acted. Listen, here's your an example for you. Remember what I did when I was there. The example that I provided you. Verse 7, he deals with his integrity. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you. He said, listen, I acted, I acted with integrity around you. I had a good testimony. You saw how I acted. I wasn't taking advantage of anybody who have different motivations. I acted with integrity. Verse 8, he was industrious. Neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you. He had integrity. He was industrious. He worked. He worked hard so as not to be a burden to the people. He said, listen, he goes on, listen, I could have. It was right had I did that, but I still wasn't even going to do it. I had the power to do that, but I'm not going to. His work provided an example. They needed to see this example. And he's telling them, remember how I, how I was among you. And then, not only do we see his integrity, his, how industrious he was, but also his intentions. Not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. He said, listen... When I was there, it wasn't about money. It wasn't about pride. It was to be an example. 
so that you would know how to glorify God with your life. He had the proper motive. Think about this. He's writing this. If you remember, if I don't remember, because that's all the way back when we started First Thessalonians. But he's writing this from Corinth. Remember, these letters were written very quickly after he established the churches. First one was about six, eight months after he started the church. This is just a couple of months later. He's sending out Second Thessalonians already. All right. So while he's sitting in Corinth, we, we know he's working with his tent-making skills with Aquila and Priscilla. Paul had the proper motive. There's a good quote from a commentator. I'll read his on this section. He said, The greatest influence is that of godly living and sacrifice. A Christian leader may appeal to the authority of the word, but if he cannot point also to his own example of obedience, his people will not listen. He's right. Because Paul is going to get into authority here in a second. But he's reminding them first of his example. That he provided them. And there is a difference between authority and stature. A leader earns that, that stature, that respect, as he serves and obeys God and builds a good testimony. This allows a leader to be in place to exercise authority with effectiveness, which is what Paul is getting ready to do. Paul, by his actions, prevented any accuser from coming and questioning his motives or his methods. And now you can look to see how, here it is, the second church established in Macedonia on, on, on this uh, second missionary journey, how already by the principle he put in place when he would go into each area, just so there was no questions, nothing involved, I'm not taking anything from him. Now you can see how beneficial that wisdom was. The next, the third, the third one that he goes to, he had to separate the standard that he gave with his example, and this that's starvation is what I called it. He said, For when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. He's basically saying tough love might be needed. If they can work, if they're physically able to work and refusing to, he says, stop feeding them. Stop providing. End it. You're under no obligation to do it. Stop it. Don't enable the behavior. This would be very free into the church. By the way, think about this. Christ followed this example, did he not? Think about it. This is pretty neat. Go to John chapter 6, also Matthew. On one afternoon, he feeds the 5,000 plus women and children. 5,000. All right? Fed them all. Two, they were full. Gets on the boat, crosses. Well, the next, let's go to the next morning. Same chapter, John chapter 6, the next morning. The people find him again. He didn't make him breakfast that morning. They had to get their own food. He wasn't creating a welfare state. They had to get their own food. That's why they showed up. Remember that? They showed up. We're here. Okay. Good. So Paul gives the next command, listen, stop providing. Stop it. If they don't work, they don't eat. And then he gives the command. Lastly, the command, the statute is what I called it. 
Now then, verse 12, Now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. He's saying, here's the command. By the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, you in this church who are not working, and you can work. He's going to get to those really who can't in a second. I'll tie that in. Who can work? Work. That's what you do. You work and you provide for yourself. This nonsense of trying to get out of it and the Lord's going to come back or whatever you're using. Well, I'm giving myself over to this. No. He says, no, just stop it. You, you find work, you work and you provide for yourself. So now he brings it to a command. So he told him, this is the order you're going to take. He said, listen, you need, you, you need to separate from them. Now, remember again, if they're going to work, the moment they get a job, they'd be restored. The repentance is in place. They need to follow the standard he gave. The church needs to stop providing. And they need to obey the command. He was very clear on the command again. Here is the command. Go find a job. Now, we also see Paul in his deals with the people involved as I finish this up with the last point. He's going to deal with the people who are doing right and with the busybodies. Verse 13 says this, But ye, brethren, be not weary in well-doing. Verse 15, and now he switches to the busybodies, Yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So, let's deal with this. Paul is trying to protect now from extremes coming about based on his command with how stern he's being. He wants extremes avoided. All right? So the first thing he wants to do, he wants to exhort them to continue to do right. Be not wary and well-doing. Don't be discouraged in that you're doing good. He knew that, he, he understands that they are frustrated with it, it's causing division. You've got those who are providing, they see what's taking place, and they're like, well, man, this guy can work. Why am I paying him? Why are we feeding him? And it's, it's causing, you know, anger and whatnot to take place. He says, listen, don't be wary and well-doing. Don't get discouraged. He doesn't want an overreaction here to those who truly do need help for them to pull back and not help them. He says, listen, no, you're still going to do what's right. There are going to be those who need help. Help them. You know how it is. You can get frustrated with some group and all of a sudden, that's it, I'm not doing anything else. No, Paul says, don't go that route. If there are those who need help, look to do good. Be not wary in well-doing. He still wanted them to help those who needed it. He knew they needed to stay focused on the Lord and not on people. When we get focused on people and not God, boy, can frustration boil over in our life. We also learned from this with what was going on in the church, how sin in the life of even one person can affect the entire congregation at times. Now, again, this is an extreme because this is, this is a group of some who are now purposely, because they're busybodies, meddling, causing division within the church. And then he goes against another extreme. How to treat those that they're no longer going to have company with. Those that are under discipline. He warns them against overreacting to this as well. He says, yet count him not as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. He doesn't want them to overact here. He said, you don't treat them like enemies. They're still your brother. You stay friendly. You stay kind. 
But the fellowship aspect is done. That right is gone. Again, so that it will lead to repentance and they can be restored. We are to be friendly. A great example of this in the Bible. I think, well, to what extent are you feeling? I, th- I think is um, Abraham with Lot. Now, there's no church. There's no church discipline involved. But Lot is an example of a man who certainly wasn't doing right. Not walking with where he should be as a brother. He found himself taken captive. Abraham helped him. That's what he did. You don't see still fellowship after that? Anything else like that taking place? He went and helped him. That's what he did. It's not a measure of shunning. It's a matter of no fellowship in that regard. If you want to look at that, that's true. That's biblical and that's right. But it's still being friendly. Admonishing us, but listen, I'm praying for you. So, in finishing up here, as Paul was addressing this moral issue around work. And listen, by the way, I don't think this is an issue. I don't have anything issue like this in our church. I don't. If it exists, I'm not aware of it. But as Christians, I think there's one point I would like to make before we close. As Christians, wherever we're at, wherever we're employed at, we should be the hardest workers. The ones with the most integrity, the most faithful. Because we do it as unto the Lord. It should be a noticeable difference in our life. The ones who aren't always complaining. The ones that simply work hard, that trust God. I mean, promotion is of the Lord, is it not? People should notice a difference. The very, the, the, you, you've heard a bit of his testimony before. I've, I've mentioned it a few times over the last seven, seven years, but boy, it fits right here. The very last man I led to the Lord, the businessman, if you remember, he owned one of the three trade stores in Namatanai on. I'd witnessed him to him several times over the seven years. He was, man, my memory is going Buddhist or Hindu. Buddhist, I believe, was his back. Might have been. I can't remember which one it was. But anyhow, and for the most part, wanting nothing to do with it till near the end when I was finishing up. He started coming to services and listening. He would come by the house and have me go over the gospel. He'd want to hear it. And I, I, it's odd. I, there's been four or five times in my life where I've had that. The, the E9 I worked for here at Elmendorf. And... Big guy. He'd call me in. I was E5. He'd call me in, into his office, sit me down, have me close the door, and say, go over it. Let me hear it. I'd go through the gospel. You can go. You know, maybe like eight months later, a year later. Come on in here. Sit down. Go over it again. And so Ong would do that. He'd come over. Tell me again. Anyhow, so let's fast forward. I'm leaving the country now. I've actually flown out of New Ireland. We're in Port Moresby, waiting to get on a plane to leave the country to come back to the United States. And he meets me with his wife at the airport. His wife had already been saved. Marianne had led his wife to the Lord. Meets me at the airport. He wants to hear it again. 
And he puts his faith in Christ right there. He got baptized after that, got in church, everything. It's great. All right? But he told me this. He said, when he first got here, he, wanted, he thought nothing of Christianity because of all of his workers. This is exactly what he told me. Because P&G claims to be the Christian nation. Now, very few are genuinely converted. Catholicism, United Church, dominated our island. Neither are close to the gospel. And so because of that, he associated Christianity with all the stealing, the fighting, the bicker. This is coming right from him. All that he saw, he said, to me, there was just nothing to it. But then Puce came in. He was from the work in Soho at Liberty Baptist. And he said, he was different. He never stole from me. He worked hard. Listen, Puce's work ethic, because he was a Christian, is what led to that man's salvation. The only reason he wanted to come here, what I had to say, was because of what he saw in Puce. That's what led to it. Listen, and... I'm going to be, I've told Levi this many times, probably Daniel when he was younger, I don't remember we were in New Guinea, but I've told Levi, you know, I said, you know what, if you work, this thing just started picking me up just now, didn't it? I just, no, I just got it in place. I said, if you work hard, it's easy to stand out here in this culture. You got so many people looking, spending more energy, how to get out of work. I said, you just work, work hard. So anyhow, I'm dealing with this problem. Paul dealt with a problem that come up in the church. You let them know how to deal with it. Well, you need to separate from this. You need to separate from them. You know, those busy bodies, it's causing division. It's to a point now it shouldn't have got to. Please follow my example that I have given you. You stop providing. If they don't work, they don't eat. If they can work. And that, by the way, that is implied. I forgot to mention it. That is implied in the wording of that text. That the ability to work is there. That if they can work, then they work. And then, of course, giving the command. Following that command. And he warns, don't go to extremes. Don't be wearing well-doing. Those who still need help, still help them. And those that you are going to discipline out, don't treat them as an enemy. Treat them as a brother. All right? The fellowship has to be broken, yes. But you're still friendly. With heads bowed and eyes closed.